I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of right there in the middle, and it's sandwiched between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And that book's a short one, so you might skip right over it. But Ecclesiastes, and this uh, beginning this week will serve as our summer series. For those of you that are visiting with us today, we study our Bibles book by book, by chapter, by verse. If we start in a book, we usually read every verse of it and study each one. Sounds like a lot of work. It is. But along with the good parts and the exciting parts, the dramatic parts, the uplifting parts, we make sure we get our vitamins with the depressing parts and the unsettling parts, the convicting parts, the parts we'd rather not think about till later parts. But we've been studying the book of Acts since well into last year. And usually from holiday to holiday in the summer, we'll take a break just so things don't sound as if they're droning on. And the selection was made this year with Ecclesiastes. Now, I got COVID a few weeks back and missed one, messed up my schedule. The introduction was supposed to be last week so that I could better tailor something around graduates this week. But I'm glad that uh, the Lord covers all this rather than myself because I think the way it worked out, it, it, it should fit better. Um, and I'm always intrigued at how the Lord seems to give us what we need right when we need it. You can be the judge of that rather than myself. But if you found your place there in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, but before we read that, I thought we might start with some poetry. Ecclesiastes is poetry. Other people write poetry. I don't really get poetry that much. I have to confess it wasn't my most exciting subject in school. I'm sure some of you may have come across this as well. The problem that bothered me was that they would say, if 10 people read it, 10 people might see something different and all 10 of them are right. I don't care that they all see something different. It's just they can't be all right. It has to mean something, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing with poetry and sometimes with music. And when we get into the guts of this book, we're going to find out this book is really different than the others. And it says things that sound like something that would be said from some philosophy major or some recording artist or something like that. So I thought we'd start with something maybe you've heard before, but then we'll read what's inspired words of God. We'll start this way. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? You're already laughing. Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy. I need no sympathy because I'm easy come, easy go, little high, little low. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. The song, I mean poetry, ends. Nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters to me. Any way the wind blows. That could be pulled right out of Ecclesiastes. Maybe it was. But Queen made a lot of money on it. (laughs) Bono talked about the thing that he still hadn't found what he was looking for. Mick Jagger was sung about how he can't get no satisfaction. When we get to chapter 3, we'll talk about Pete Seeger 
turn, 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 which is ripped out word for word right out of the Bible. But as far as what we're going to read in a moment, this is almost, not verbatim, but it's, it's right here. And you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. That's Roger Waters, but it was David Gilmore who sang it. Pink Floyd made a lot of money on that before they broke up. So this Ecclesiastes here, what I'm about to read is inspired words of God. This is Scripture. But you may see some of these things as we read and even further. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It is already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of God. And let's pray and ask for his help to understand it and obey it. Father in heaven, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. Lord, we thank you for the questions we all struggle with, whether we know your name or not. Lord, we thank you that this book, in a special way, seems to address what even the most lost of sinners can surely relate to. What is the purpose of it all? So, Lord, would you be our teacher, and would you help us on a Sunday like this to be able to see from your word what we need for today and tomorrow? And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. David Gibson uh, is an author. He's a Scotsman. He, his book is in a stack of those in addition to other commentaries that I've used to put this series together. But in his book, Living Life Backwards, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End, says that the development of the imagination is one of the most intriguing things that happens as little children begin to explore their world. This is how he opens his discussion on the topic or passage we just read. And uh, goes on to explain his experience of watching his children as they develop their imagination and any parent who's had children, even one. It gets more interesting when there's more than one. Um, 
but to watch as their vocabulary begins to expand such that they can not only have a conversation with themselves, but maybe multiple imaginary people in an imaginary setting. Say it's a house or a hospital or a store or whatever that you're thinking about. But just imagine the way that that all works. And imagine the way that they imagine an alternate reality in their own little head which can be whatever they want it to be, whenever they want it to be, however they want it to be. Um, And then we grow up, don't we? And as we grow up, do we tend to change or trade that reality or that alternate reality, which is pretend and make-believe, for the way the world really works? You ever watched that or paid attention to it? It happens to all of us. But when we've got kids in the home, isn't it fascinating for us to be able to watch them put all that make-believe together, right? But how many of you enjoy the process of them growing up and having to trade that for the real stuff? How many of you enjoy having to explain to your kids, no, the real world is different? Um... The real world's a lot darker. There's a reason why somebody would do something like that. They ask you a question, what is this? And you want to do something like, ask your father. Or ask your mother. Or ask your pastor. Ask your uh, youth leader, Sunday school teacher, anything. But deal with it. Because reality, as you grow up, becomes an increasingly disappointing and discouraging and difficult place to live, doesn't it? In real hospitals, people are in real pain. In real hospitals, real doctors don't always know how to make them better. In real stores, you can't just buy whatever you want. In, in real battlefronts, you know, people actually die. It's not just a bunch of heroes. And sometimes it's the bad guys that seem to win. So there's... A world like we'd like it, and there's a world as it really exists. The sad part about Ecclesiastes is it describes the real one. And the sadder thing is that most of us continue as adults to pretend it's not. That's where Ecclesiastes will help us. It's a gift of God to help us live in the real world and to prepare us for the one to come. So we learn in verse 1 which is not set uh, in poetic format as far as what you're looking at on the page, that would be just a statement, introductory statement. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, in weeks to come, we'll talk about who that is. Is it Solomon? Is it somebody else? There's opinions as to both sides of that, and it doesn't seem to be definitely settled. But this preacher, as he's referred to, begins by pulling the pin on a grenade and blowing everything up. That is, as far as your hopes and dreams. So, welcome to Graduate Sunday. (laughs) Nothing means anything, all is worthless, and everything is stupid. It's basically what we're going to read in the contents of this book and what we've read in the first 11 verses. But in a poetic and bible sounding way, right? I struggled with this. What do you title uh, 
a, a, a message which serves as an introduction to Ecclesiastes on Graduate Sunday. I thought, uh, welcome to adulthood, now the real suffering begins. <laughs> or have fun at college, it's expensive, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and I thought, well, and I just stick with the way the preacher said it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. With the exclamation point. We'll stick with that. But let's look at what that means. There's five vanities, if you're looking at an ESV, in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, exclamation point, all is vanity, period. So you'd probably do well to define that term. What is vanity? Some would say, well, that's uh, looking at yourself and thinking you're prettier than uh, you really are, or cooler than you really are. They write songs about that, too, about... Uh, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. And I also thought about that. Maybe you're so vain, you probably think Ecclesiastes is about you. But that's all of us. So maybe that would work. The word is a translation from the Hebrew word hevel. It would be hevel, hevel, says the preacher, uh, five times straight. But I'm going to actually go against the flow, as far as some are concerned, and say that I think that many well-meaning Bible translators and teachers over the years have kind of led us in a direction that maybe the Scriptures didn't mean to take us. The word meaningless is probably not the best translation for that word. Now, that's what the NIV chose. If you've got an NIV, you're looking at meaningless right there. Uh, some would use the word uh, futile. Most of them, ESV, RSV, NASB, King James Version, have vanity for it. But the reason why I would say that that meaninglessness is perhaps misplaced um, is because of things that are said within the book itself. Later, the preacher here is going to say things like, better is one handful of quiet than two handfuls of, of toil. Now, if he's saying one thing's better than another, how can he say that both are meaningless? One actually means more than the other. What he said doesn't make sense. Same is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Well, there's something of, of quality and value in the house of mourning that not necessarily so of the house of feasting. So he's making value assessments here. So something means something. If you were to scour the scriptures for that same word, you find a lot of them in the book of Psalms. And a lot of the time it's translated breath or breeze. And what it means is that it's It's temporary. You can't get your hands around it. It's here and then it's gone. So to look at it again, if this is a more accurate way to look at it, to translate the word as we see it translated elsewhere in Scripture, the majority of the time, it would be the merest of breaths, the merest of breaths, everything is just a breath. So not that it's meaningless, it's just short. And it's going to be gone before you know it. And to put all your eggs in the basket of a vapor, smoke, or breath, would be a foolish thing to do. Put your eggs in a basket that's going to last longer than just one puff. So I'll take the preacher at his word and give him 
a hearing through the rest of the book to explain exactly what he means by saying life is just a breath. But he does give us a pretty good snapshot in the first 11 verses, and that's what we just read. So let's take our time together this morning, as brief as it is, and see if we can't see and understand this introductory snapshot and at least catch a glimpse of what he means by the fact that life is the merest of breaths. Look at verse 3. And, and this is the question that's important to the opening section, the first 11 verses. Everything after verse 3 down to verse 11 is meant to be an answer to the question in verse 3. You see a question mark at the end of verse 3? The answer is all the way down to the end of verse 11. What does it say? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That covers your whole existence from the day you're born till the day you die. You work yourself tired. And what do you have to show for it? That's his way of, of kind of setting the stage for the rest of the book. What is, what is said is purposely upsetting. What he aims to do with this is to unsettle and agitate the brain into thinking about something we'd rather not think at. There's some people that like to get the bad news first. They like to look at their portfolio after a down day in the market. There's some people that uh, like to actually peek a look under the wrapping paper at their presents before Christmas. But most of the world would rather say ignorance is bliss, right? Just don't tell me that stuff. But in this case, he's saying, no, if you're listening to me, I'm going to tell you all the bad stuff. I'm going to provoke you into thinking, hopefully, to prepare yourself for what's to come. So what does it mean to say these things? Well, let's see how he, he uh, categorizes things. And, and the fact that we're in Ecclesiastes, and here's a key for you. This will serve us for the next several weeks. This is wisdom literature. There's a few other books in the Bible called wisdom books. Proverbs is the one everybody thinks of. If, if you know your way around the Bible, it's full of wisdom. Uh, a lot of times parents will assign their children one chapter to read, you know, for every day for a month. And if they don't change their tune, try it again for another month, right? Um, also, you've got Song of Solomon, some list in here. And also Job. You remember how Job was. Job's friends were supposed to be the smartest dudes around. And at the end of it all, after they'd said all the stuff that they were going to say, the right appropriate response was Job putting his hand over his mouth and God correcting these men for being, you know, too long-winded, thinking too hard. There's going to be some of that in Ecclesiastes as well. But because it's wisdom literature, it's asking what it means to fear the Lord in the world he's made. That's basically your job, to serve the Lord in this lovely world that he made for us to live on. How do we do that? Well, wisdom literature gives us some points. But it also, and especially Ecclesiastes, what does it mean to serve the Lord in a world that God made and called good, yet which has also gone so very wrong, often in catastrophic ways? I think by graduating high school, you probably learned that not everything about this world is great. There's a lot of screwed up stuff in this world. And then you find out that there's a lot of messed up stuff in the church. 
There's a lot of messed up stuff in the school. A lot of messed up stuff in their government. And then the worst of all, when it finally dawns on you, the reason why all that is true, because there's a lot of messed up stuff in my head and in my heart. This world doesn't work like it's supposed to. I don't work like I was created to work. So what do I do with it all? Need some pointers in need of some wisdom. So verses 1 through 11 here, the question is posited in verse 3. In verse 4 through 7... Let's just give you a breakdown. If you're writing a book report on this, you need to analyze what's taking place. Verse 4 through 7, the preacher looks at the elemental things of nature. He mentions earth, air, fire in the form of the sun, and water in the form of rivers, and sees no real change anywhere. Uh, that's where you get the, and you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking Um, And then in verse 8 through 11, he moves to human experience, sees the same thing that he sees in nature, that things are done over and over and over again without any real profit or genuine progress. The planet itself or the people who live on it, it's just kind of stuck in a cyclical, repetitive, short, and elusive type of broken record. So if we take all this, we can organize them into a few themes. And and for the sake of of getting done on time, let's just do that. There'll be three of them. Life is short, life is elusive, and life is repetitive. Hear the guy out, and then we'll make an assessment. What What is he trying to tell us? Life is short. I can remember hearing about midlife before I got to it. Um, that's where I live. And usually, you know, as a kid, when you hear midlife, it's usually associated with another word, right? comes right behind it. Midlife what? Crisis. And I always thought, that's for old people that, like, lose their mind. And that'll never happen to me. I'll always want to get out of the bed every morning. I'll always enjoy work. I'll always enjoy my hobbies and never need a new one. And then I got to midlife. Before I realized what the crisis stuff was, I just thought, what's wrong with me? Uh, But you'd never do anything like ask for help or go see anybody about any of that stuff. You know, you're fine, right? It's the other people that are crazy. But usually, the answer to why that even exists is because that is where it dawns on you that you've passed the midpoint and you're closer to the end than you were to the beginning. And usually it's already happened by the time it dawns on you. And it's not a pleasant thought. And people are so loving and caring. They give you the black balloons and, you know, send you the ugly cards and, and all this. And, and even though we all know that it's a struggle, it, there's very little help from each other. It's almost like, God, it's your turn. Have a party. Um, but if you really think about it, most people expected more. So maybe they're disappointed or feel cheated or blame themselves or live angry or get depressed. That's, that's the, the, real, the real jab. I expected more out of myself or expected more out of my family or expected more out of my portfolio or expected who knows what. Why is that? Because we live most of our life not in the real world but in a pretend one where everything's supposed to go our way. And it's only at midlife where we really realize 
that that's what's happening. But at midlife, do we change course and throw away the pretend time for reality? Not really. What do we do about a midlife crisis? Join a gym, buy a new car, color your hair, wreck someone's home. That's usually typically when it happens, when we think, oh, I got a little bit of time left. I better use what I've got before I don't have that anymore. And it only makes it worse. It just doubles down on the the pretend time. I'll pretend this will work when it hasn't worked for anybody I know. But it'll work for me. That's crazy. That's what this preacher is saying we must snap out of. It's an awful story. But it's true. And there is hope at the end, but he's going to save that to the end. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind, here one minute and carried away forever in the next. It's short. And we don't even realize that until most of it is over. What does any of this have to do with graduation? Just hang on. I'm getting there. Be patient with me. Life is elusive. That's the next one. Um, isn't it true that so many things in life are just out of your reach? How many of you, you know, we talk a lot about equality in our world, but is this world an equal opportunity endeavor? Some ways, yes, but in most ways, no. That stuff that they want to tell you, graduation speeches, that you can be anything you want to be, is not true. I'm sorry. Um... You can be a lot of things, but certain people just don't have what it takes to be what other people are going to be better at. And if it's, I want to be rich, there'll be some other mafia don with a tackier yacht. Always. It just won't happen that way. Certain things are elusive. It's like smoke. You can't grab it and put some of it in your pocket and save it for later. Like a morning fog, it's gone, or your breath on a cold day, you see it, but it disappears. We were watching TV the other day, and there was a scene where people were smoking on an airplane. And at least I can say I remember when that used to happen. It's been a ways back, but it it used to happen. But the stuff just kind of went away. You'd smell it. There'd be its ghost for a while. But it's a perfect illustration. Uh, All that's been replaced now with, with vaping, I suppose. But think of it as a big vape. You're parked at the stoplight. Someone rolls down their window, and you think their motor's blown. It's not. It's, it's this new type of smoking. But it's the same thing. It goes away. It, it's, it's gone. Now, this isn't an endorsement. Don't say that I said it's cool to vape. That person, whoever it was, should be a competitive vapor. It was a massive cloud. But don't do that. It's bad for you. I have to give you something to talk about at lunch, right? Did you know that the grandchildren of the Vanderbilts, the original Vanderbilt, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Many of you have been to the Biltmore? Loaded railroad money. They had a family reunion in the 70s with 120 of the grandchildren, the descendants. Not one of them was a millionaire. They all squandered it. It passed through their fingers Life is elusive. You might 
be able to get everything lined up, right place, right time, right people, or not. You might pour your life into education and not wind up in the field you're educated for. You might be a massive success. The truth is, we don't really know. We can't count chickens before they hatch. And how much control do we really have over how healthy we will be or how secure our job will be or what will interest rates be or housing prices or what it costs to build houses out of? All that stuff moves around. It's maddening where you'll be in 10 years or 20 years. The implied answer to verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun, is nothing because it's too short. And if you could get your hands around it, when you die, you have to let it go. There's no U-Hauls after the hearse. Right? It doesn't work that way. The word gain in that sentence conveys the idea of something left over at the end, something to show for all your hard work and suffering. And we can't hold on to any of it. So the preacher's sketch as far as the elusiveness of life is chilling. We leave only one thing behind, and that is the earth we used to live on, remaining right where it was when we were born, only now it spins on without us. Everything was just a breath. Let's add one more. Life is repetitive. This one's a little brighter than the other two. Because in our Lord's wisdom, He gave this this world of ours a repetition. And those cycles of repetition are in our lives as well. We get the same four seasons in North Carolina every year. You say, that's the same old thing. But don't you love seeing spring after the wintertime? It's a good thing. Simple things in life are great, but it is a a, a rhythmic, patterned, repetitive life. From the pictures he describes here of the sun and the wind and the rivers, everything either comes and goes or goes round and round or rises and sets. The point is that the world itself doesn't seem to go anywhere or get anywhere. Everything is cyclical rather than linear. So why should humans get anywhere or go anywhere? We'd have something up on the created order, which we don't. In other words, the sun chases its tail, and so do we. Basically, our existence. Verse 9 and 10, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? What about that last phrase? Is there something that you could say right now, well, that's new. What I've just done, not what I've done, what the preacher has done through Scripture is just split this room in half. Half this room says, no, there's nothing new. And the other half says, oh, yeah, I see new things all the time. Some have hit midlife and some haven't. You're way too young to think that there's nothing new in this world. You see new things all the time. You're headed to new places, going to learn new things, try new things, meet new people. The rest of us are saying, hey, it's just a repetition of the same old stuff we've been doing since we were your age. It's probably getting on your nerves now as people ask you, so what are you going to do? And all these other things that seem to put one generation against another. But I have to believe that is true even if it doesn't feel like that. I remember 
the radio in my Mustang, it was a 66 Fastback and had a hole cut in the dash I wish had never been cut to put a cassette player because that was the new thing. Well, I left that there and underneath it that I could remove without damaging the dash, I put in my first CD player. CDs were great. They were expensive. They were like 12 whole dollars a piece. And if you scratched them, they were no good. But you didn't have to rewind them or turn them over. It was great. Now everything's gone. It's even different than that. And to think what the smartphone made popular by Apple has done to technology. You would think of all the stuff under the sun, technology would be the, the, the exemption, that that stuff is new. And then there's new stuff that makes that old stuff uh, obsolete. They make fun of that thing on, on Saturday Night Live, the skit where, oh, it's obsolete. Well, the one that I just handed you is now obsolete, obsolete, obsolete. It's all new. It's not new. Even with all the, the social media, it's just a different way to communicate. And even though you can communicate to way more people than you've ever communicated to before, it's still communication. And it still hasn't solved what we just read in verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Nobody ever shuts off the platform, computer, or the phone and says, Well, that's it. I've had enough social now. I am full. I need no more. In fact, we've got people studying on how to get people out of a vicious cycle who can't get enough of what other people think about them. And it, the, the bottom is knocked out of what they thought was the bottom. We're maddening ourselves with more and more communication and trying to figure out what to do with it. It hasn't fixed the problem. It's not new. It's the same old thing if we've got eyes to see it. What does man gain by all the toil that he's toiled under the sun? Well, I got 6,800 and so-and-so likes or whatever. Take that to glory with you. It doesn't amount to anything. People probably don't even know you. It's just they wanted more likes and thumbs up and friends than you did, so they said whatever they had to say to get them. If I keep going, I'll get in trouble, and I'll get labeled one of those guys. So what do we do about all this? The answer is still nothing as far as what do we gain, and verse 11 makes it even worse. No one will remember any of it anyway. Given enough time, no one will remember your name. Sounds bad. So what's it telling us? What's it teaching us? What's the point here? I think the point is preparation for death. I can just hear the lunch table now. It's graduate Sunday. Preachers finally lost it. He mentioned a midlife crisis. Now he's telling the graduates to prepare to die in front of us all on Sunday morning. I'm not doing that. Ecclesiastes 1 through 11 is. 1, 1 through 11. Hear me out. Your whole life stretches out in front of you, complete with plans for college, perhaps a career, the hope of a family, a family of your own. But it will all come and it will all go. And it won't be remembered given enough time. That's just the truth. 
Now, we'll have to skip to the end of this man's work in order to close this up today. We got weeks worth of this to study later. But many scholars suggest that the preacher is simply presenting this as a description of life lived without God. And they use the phrase under the sun as meaning a godless perspective. What I want to show you, a few minutes that's left, is that the preacher wants us to know that there is more than what's under the sun. That's the key to it all. The problem is being stuck under the sun as if that's all there is. Some would say, well, the under the sun is just a way of looking at life without God. I don't think so. Because there's passages of Scripture that say that it rains on the righteous and the ungodly. It sunshines on the righteous and the ungodly. I work. They work. I'm happy. I'm sad. They're sad. They're happy. It seems as if everybody under the sun basically gets the same stuff. It's just some of us know that there's something afterward and others that think this is all there is. That's the big difference. If you can swallow that, then we can make a point. Where do we experience life's futility and frustration? Everywhere the sun shines. No one escapes it. I don't care who you are. Rich, poor, young, old, Christian, non-Christian. And here's where you want to say, no, wait a minute. I've been misled. I've been dressing up and coming to church for a long time to hear that being a Christian isn't going to get me a better spot on this planet and better treatment from God above and that I'm not going to be a little bit more well or a little bit more wealthy or a little bit more put together than people who are atheists and hate God? Maybe not. In fact, what absolutely blows my mind is how some of them can be more happy at times than I feel, knowing the truth where their ignorance truly is bliss. But being a Christian isn't going to help much under the sun. Remember, what's under the sun is cursed by sin since the Garden of Eden. It doesn't work like it's supposed to. That's the consequences of being sinful. And we all deserve it. So if that's where we experience futility and frustration, then we're all in the same boat. The preacher isn't describing the futility of only lost people or atheists but describing reality for everybody. Think of it this way. For as long as the earth lasts, this side of eternity, life is a breath under the sun. If you buy that, and it makes sense, you can call that preparedness for the fact that we'll inevitably die with nothing and not be remembered by the ones who come behind then I think you might be in position to learn how to live. If life is a breath, that's what he's saying, how do you spend it? How do you spend your breath? Here's the best way I know to say it. Stop pretending that it isn't. If you're looking at life more than just a blip on the radar compared to eternity you're going to start hoarding all your eggs into the basket of a breath. And when the breath is gone, you'll have nothing stored up for eternity. Pretending is great when you're a kid, but pretending that this world is different than God tells you it is is going to make you look at it different, value it different, hold on to it with both fists, only to wind up with, with nothing in either by the time it's over. 
according to the preacher, under the sun is a depressing place. Duh. Life is hard and then you die. But we as Christians know from the rest of our Bibles that there is more. There is a God who rules over the sun. And he knows your name if you're his child. And when your breath is gone, you're his forever. You're his now. But the real game starts. This is just the practice, and let's be glad it's short, <laughs> right? Because it hurts a lot. The word hevel, that's the one translated vanity or meaningless if you've got the NIV, is found about two or three times in the New Testament, transliterated into Greek through the, the translations. And one of them is found in Romans 8. If you want to turn there or write down the address, just listen. But let me show you where the same word, when we're talking about Ecclesiastes, Old Testament is found in the New Testament. This is Paul speaking, Romans 8, 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Yes, that's the word. A breath. Vanity. It's all in vain. Worked yourself to the bone, it's gone. He says the creation was subjected to that. Absolutely. Because of sin. It wasn't created that way. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Graduates, what that means is that God died on a cross, sent his son to die on a cross to free us from the messed up world that was messed up because of sin and to fix it all after this life is over. To give you what he created in the garden that was messed up because of sin. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. That's what we've been reading. In the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. It's not just the planet that's messed up. It's something that I agree with. Yeah, the ocean's full of plastic and it's killing the fish. It makes me mad because I like to catch them and eat some of them. Don't ruin the beauty of the ocean God made. Don't ruin the land and, and, and all the stuff that we're doing to pollute things. It's unsustainable. It's going to get us in a problem. But it's as if we can blame it all on the planet and think we're all like little angels. It's just as bad inside here. We're in with it too. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. We're ready for that renewal back to the garden as much as the planet is. Verse 24, For in this hope we are saved. Not hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? He's, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, who's hoping for something they have already in their hand? No, if you're hoping, your hand is empty. Can't see it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What he's saying here is survive under the sun and hope for the other side by grace of the Lord over the sun. Both testaments are telling us this. All right, what does this have to do with graduation Sunday? Here's my best to untangle this. So this is for the front row. The rest of you, it's for you too. Everything in the scriptures for all of us. But here's what I thought might be of help. Just to reiterate what's already been said, but maybe to help you so that when you hit the bumps and things go away you don't expect, you won't feel cheated. Being saved, and you know it, 
You know the song, saved and you know it, clap your hands, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, that means that you trust Jesus to have paid your sins. You can't do it yourself. And because he's paid for your sins, death doesn't have any more claim on you than it did on Jesus on the morning of the third day. Your sins are forgiven. Your hope is in heaven because you're not going to work for salvation yourself. If you are saved, it doesn't get you a pass from Havel. You still live under the sun. Your hearts are still going to get broke. People are still going to disappoint you. Your boss still may be ugly or he might be the best boss anyone's ever had. You're going to get to enjoy simple things that God meant for you to see as beautiful. People in this room are going to tell you these are the best days of your life. That's not true either. Because if that were true, then the best days of your parents' life were before you got here. If they're honest, they would tell you the best is yet to come because they wouldn't know what to do without you. The day someone hands half of you and half of your spouse to you in your arms is going to be the day you realize you're the richest you've ever been. There's good and there's bad. There's rain and there's sunshine, but it's still under the sun. And you're not going to get a pass. You're not going to be able to pray and say, because I'm a Christian, you have to treat me different than you do the lost people. No, he died for them too. There's the, Christianity is not a gimmick, and, and, and it's not like a, 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 a gold membership to something. Yes, you have heaven, but it's on the other side. And for now, in the space of a breath, it doesn't amount to much. It's beautiful and it's agony, both at the same time. The best things in my life were equal parts, exhilarating and anxiety. And you'll probably find the same is true. Some preachers may tell you different. Come to Jesus and he wants you to be rich. He wants you to be healthy. He wants all this stuff. Now that's in heaven. For most Christians, he kind of wants them to look like him. And the world absolutely used him as a doormat. That is our lot. They hated him, they'll hate us. Here's 2 Corinthians 4, and this will help the whole room. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Yours is too, you just don't know it yet. Those of us that are older than you envy your youth and your ability to like run fast and jump high and stay awake and pass tests uh, and not be so jaded. The rest of us are just thinking, Lord, speed it up. I want to go home. This is agony. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Imagine that. The older our body gets and crumbles, spiritually speaking, the better our inner self should be renewed and growing. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I'm not so sure I even get all that yet. You've got to be beat up a lot to get a statement like that. I'll read it again. For the light, this light momentary, like a breath, affliction, that's bad, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There are people in this church who grew up in this church, been here a long time, who've been faithful Serve the Lord. Some of them may have taught you or others before you. 
they hang on to this a little different than we do. Their life consists of doctor's appointments where doctors tell them there's less there than there was before and maybe we can help, maybe it's not worth helping. People that used to visit them don't visit them anymore. Things they used to do, they can't do anymore. It comes with a, with a, a self-conscious embarrassment of trying to keep the world on the outside of the reality that I'm just wasting away. And the devil wants to say, it means nothing. It means everything. For this light momentary affliction, I'm going to say that's your whole existence under the sun, just not the last part of it, post-midlife, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, that stuff's going to burn, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The ones who feel as broken down more than any are closer to the reward that none of us have a clue how great it is. Unless, of course, long ago someone helped us quit pretending under the sun and embrace its futility, its breathiness, and trust the Lord that he knows what he's doing and is worthy of all our glory. And then the second thing I'd tell you is this. Practically everyone you'll meet in life will be looking for meaning under the sun. You should know better. They're going to put all their eggs in the basket that's just a breath. They're going to chase one another for the bigger and the better. They'll spend their money that they don't have to impress people they don't like just so they can have the sign that says their yard is voted prettiest in the six-house development that they live in. Now, I, I could go on and on and on. But this is why people run over each other to get what they think is theirs. This is why someone will, uh, to put it in the most crass way I can think of, trade in their spouse on a newer model. Because why? Under the sun, they're supposed to be happy. Under the sun, they're supposed to be recognized. Under the sun, they're supposed to be in charge. Under the sun, blah, blah, blah. It's a breath. But if you'll invest in the Lord over the sun, under the sun may look like a total waste, as Jesus did when he left this world. But eternity... I wish I had words for it. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to trust the Lord to how great that is. The reason why I, I, I go to the pains to say these things is because where you're headed, the university, supposed to be unity and diversity. So it used to be the open marketplace of ideas. You have an idea, you can buy and trade and sell, and everybody's free to speak and and, and lend whatever they've got, their gifts, their ideas. It's not like that anymore. It's rigged. It's closed. It's only really one type of thinking in America. It's very liberal. They're going to tell you that this is absolute garbage, that this isn't true, and you're an idiot for believing it. Now, you can go to Liberty University. And that's not true there as far as what they teach, but half the kids you'll go to class with 
practically live that way and believe that way. You can have whatever you want at a Christian university. You can do all the right things. You can probably get away with doing all the bad things. Problem is, it's going to be your call from here on out. This is where parents start making less decisions and you start making more decisions. So you'll need to be prepared. You'll need to have a safety net. You'll need to have those Bibles that we're going to give you here in a moment. You're going to need to have a church that will pray for you while you're gone. But you'll be fine. The Lord didn't bring you this far to dump you. He doesn't dump anybody. He can't dump anybody. Whoever he called has been predestined. They will be justified and they will be glorified. Be glad that's on him. The survival under the sun is on you and works in as much as you give him the faith to call the shots and you listen to wisdom and reason. We'll read this again here in a few moments, but this is how we'll end the message. I'm cutting to the end. This is the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. This is the narrator speaking as he's been speaking here. It's not the preacher. The end of the matter, all has been heard. So he said all he wants to say. And here's how he concludes. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. So fear God. That's acknowledging who he is. He's in charge. He made the place. He saved, created, redeemed me. And keep his commandments. That's the contents of those Bibles on the table over there. For this is your job, the whole duty of man. That's it. That's all you're responsible to do. It's very simple. And then the bad part, for God will bring every deed into judgment. You're going to answer for how you do. Just like at the end of your semester, you're going to have to show on a test that you comprehended the material, right? So it is in eternity. The one who made you wants to see that you did something, the right thing, with his son Jesus. And then even the worst part, every deed brought into judgment with every secret thing. That's the one thing that I like best about under the sun. We can't read each other's minds. By now you probably know that your mind is not to be trusted. And if I needed to prove it to you, I could just say, instead of the video with your faces, you know, from graduation, we'll just show the contents of your thoughts for the last 24 hours to the whole church. I'd go shoot myself. Because I know what goes on in my brain. And I try to keep it clean with the help of this book. The Lord sees it all. We don't. We can't. But he does. He knows what you look like naked. And he still loves you. Your spouse won't be able to see you like he sees you. Your parents can't see you like he sees you. But no one could love you more or less than God does right now. You can't fail unless you do the only thing he won't forgive you for. And that's simply walk away and leave him. Take your breath under the sun for whatever you can get out of it. And when it's done, it's over. But you've been trained better than that. And you've got a support group that won't let you 
do that without a warning. And we hope all the best. I know this sounds like a negative sermon. It's a negative book. But when we study God's word, we have to let it say what it says. And a lot of it's just for the purpose of trusting him. Wouldn't you say a lot of your interaction with your parents is kind of that way? I mean, good grief. Is it your job just to tell me no all the time? (laughs) Sometimes it feels that way, but it comes from a a heart of love that couldn't love you anymore in their way. I've said enough. Saying more doesn't help. So I'm going to pray to conclude this service. We're going to transition, though, into uh, graduate recognition. We're going to give you some Bibles. I'll read your names. Seth's going to help me with that. When I say amen, he can come get into place. But uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to stand us up straight with the hard reality in which we live. But Lord, we thank you for the loving, open arms that are described in that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray for these graduates and others like them, their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their brothers, their sisters, their whole family, and for this church family who's watched them as children grow and mature. Lord, this day is not any different than tomorrow or yesterday, but on days like this, at a mile marker, Lord, we take time and we look And we laugh, maybe we cry, we pray. And Lord, at the end, I hope we thank you for it all. Who is gracious and merciful and kind and loving under the sun as much as you are over the sun. Lord, we thank you for these things. And we ask them all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.